0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
1: Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Kat Zakresky, a national tech policy reporter here at The Post. Today we are going to discuss the AI revolution and its impact on jobs and the economy. Up first, I'm joined by Congressman Don Beyer, a Democrat from Virginia, and also the vice chair of the Congressional AI Caucus. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Yeah, thank you, Kat. It's gonna be fun to be with you. I'm looking forward to your hard questions.
1: (laughs) Well, I've certainly got plenty of those for you, but first we'll start out on a more personal note. You're 73 years old and you've gone back to school to get a master's degree in machine learning. I wanted to ask you, what inspired you to make that move?
0: I've always been interested in it. I tried to do it on Coursera a couple of years ago and quickly realized that I was not not I didn't have the math or the computer science background to do it by myself, and so when I discovered that George Mason University here in Northern Virginia was actually willing to take me as long as I paid the full tuition, um, it's been really fun and I'm surrounded by people younger than I am and probably smarter than I am, and uh, I've really enjoyed it
1: and, you and I have a long about- way to go. And you started that process last year before we were fully in this moment of AI craze in Washington. How has that experience so far informed your efforts to regulate this technology?
0: It's been a little humbling because, you know, I'm still working through being able to program in Python 3 capably. And all of a sudden, by virtue of, first the Washington Post article on my little classes, uh, and being in Congress, I find myself at the center of the AI policy debates, which are fascinating and which are, are incredibly important and, and weren't very much talked about um, two years ago when I started the education process. And we could, there's so much to talk about on the policy side. What do we regulate? Why do we regulate? How do we how do we find the balance between innovation and, and government regulation? Hard, hard things.
1: And on that point, what advice do you give your colleagues in Congress who are also joining this policy debate and just trying to grapple with the capabilities of this technology today?
0: I think the very first point that we try to emphasize is that to the maximum extent possible, it should be bipartisan. In fact, one of the things that Kevin McCarthy did a few weeks ago when he was speaker was to create a bipartisan AI task force to really try to lay out of the 100 bills that have been introduced, which ones do we need to focus on and pass as soon as we can. I'm hoping as the speaker battle unfolds that that task force doesn't get lost.
1: I wanted to ask you about that because former Speaker McCarthy did a lot of work on AI. He also organized briefings with AI experts, attended events with Sam Altman from OpenAI. How do you think this impending battle over leadership of the House is affecting the work to regulate this technology?
0: Um, I, well, everything is slowed down to stop. So we're not working on appropriations bills. We need to <clears throat> get money to Ukraine, money to Israel. Um, and just we have a huge agenda out there, including artificial intelligence. And uh, my deep hope is that there will be a bipartisan path forward this week or next week or sometime soon. Uh, And then we're going to have a lot of catch up to do. It wouldn't surprise me at all if the next speaker cancels all recesses through the end of the year just for us to be able to get the work done that needs to be done.
1: And on that note, I wanted to ask you a bit about the work that's ongoing in the Senate on artificial intelligence. Um, Senator Schumer got a lot of attention, had the summit with tech executives um, just a few weeks ago. What kind of coordination is there right now between members of your caucus and the working group that Senator Schumer has set up on AI policy?
0: Yeah, Kat, there hasn't been, to the best of my knowledge, any formal working together on it. Um, a, a, at least part of that is our caucus is co chaired by Mike McCall, who also chairs the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And he's been rather busy um, with everything that's going on in Israel and Ukraine. Um, but, and I think the bills, though, are working in parallel. Uh, one of the ones that we've been most excited about is legislation requiring um, government contracting. You think the defense sector, virtually every sector, um, that they would have to use the National Science Institute for of Technology AI framework, the NIST framework, which is at the moment considered the gold standard in terms of doing uh, AI in an ethical and socially responsible way and mandating that for all of our government contracting, which is you know a huge part of, of what we do. And on top of that, the president just last week announced that he's gonna do that by executive order, at least for the time being, rolled out later this month.
1: And on that point, I mean, how do you think about just the work we've seen from the White House? We recently also saw the White House host a voluntary pledge for companies working on AI. Are these efforts like the executive order, the voluntary pledge, is this enough? Um,
0: well, it's a start and I think it's a durable start. You know, I don't think we will throw any of that away as we move forward. Um, is it ultimately gonna be enough? No, of course not. But when you don't know how to regulate AI and when you don't really know what are the downside risks of AI yet, we, there's lots of speculation, but nothing hard. Um, it's it was tough to to go out and say here's what you have to do um, you know in the long run I don't think the society is going to trust the AI experts to do it on a voluntary basis I was able to see over the weekend that OpenAI which is you know the, the granddaddy right now um, has said that they are only going to look at artificial general intelligence which is typically the the AI we worry about in, in terms of existential threats um, only use it and develop it if it is as I say, ethical and socially responsible. Uh, that was voluntary, but it is a really major step forward and hopefully will be a role model for everyone else in the industry.
1: You mentioned that there's still a lot of debate around the potential downsides of AI and some of these existential risks. But what are the downsides of AI that we're already seeing that you're most worried about?
0: I don't know that worried is the right answer. The most obvious one, Kat, is the impact on job destruction. The fact that well, we saw it with the writers and the and the, the actors in uh, strike. You know, worried about their jobs could be eliminated by it. Um, I, I don't. If I were a copy editor, I'd be a little worried. <laughs> we've already seen uh, in grocery stores and drugstores and the like the the need for many fewer cashiers. I, I was reading that uh, Goldman Sachs figured 12 million American jobs will be destroyed by AI by 2030. Uh, There's our next next McKinsey. I think Goldman said something like $300 worldwide in the next two decades. But on the other hand, uh, every technological breakthrough that we've ever seen um, has created more jobs than it eliminated. We didn't see the Internet coming, and it obviously destroyed a lot of jobs. But, you know, last I looked, we had almost 9 million jobs in America we can't fill. There will be different jobs, and we will have to spend a lot more energy and resources on training and reaching. People, But I think as we get through the creative destruction, it will be a much bigger economy than it was before.
1: And Congressman, with each of those technological revolutions though, there are always people that are left behind. What responsibility does Congress have to help retrain people, or what are some of the other ideas that you have to help prepare Americans for this new future?
0: Yeah, I think it's the same responsibility that Congress has always had. You know, for example, when we did trade deals, inevitably there were people that that got left out. The 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 impact of technology and manufacturing has had an enormous impact on manufacturing workers across this country. I think we've done um, a poor job. Uh, the, again, the, the number today is one-tenth of 1% of our total federal budget is spent on retraining workers. I mean, it's way too little when you figure that um, This is our future. And and by the way, when you don't retrain the workers, you can spend a lot more money on them in terms of transfer payments, food stamps, housing allowances, things like that. We need to be able to get them back into the workforce. So a much greater commitment to that. You know, there are lots of economists over the years have banded around the ideas of requiring uh, businesses of all sizes to invest in training in their workers or face, you know, say a higher tax um, if they don't do it. Uh, I think the wise businesses are all committed to really lifting up their workforce as best they can, because that's the way they're going to thrive. And that is very much going to be not just Congress's responsibility, but our social responsibility as a people.
1: Do you think tech companies, the companies building these most advanced, uh, particularly generative AI models, should be responsible for funding some of that retraining?
0: Uh, I hadn't really thought that through, but to the extent that they're making money, yes, absolutely. You know, one of the things that we've really done poorly, Kat, the last two and a half decades is regulate social media. Um, in fact, I think the only major piece of legislation was to make it them difficult to sue. Uh, we want to try to avoid that um, sort of laissez-faire approach to it and be active in the regulation. We also don't want to I don't think we want to do what the Europeans have done so far The the famous EU AI Act um, is groundbreaking, but also is way more restrictive than I think is appropriate for our culture and our society. And I think most of the people who looked at it worry a lot about what it would do to innovation.
1: And so you mentioned the challenges with regulating social media. We've seen this across the board with tech regulation, especially over the last decade. There's been bipartisan support for privacy legislation and several attempts over the last 10 plus years. And here we still are without a federal privacy law. Why do you think AI will be any different?
0: Well, it it might not be. Um, My hope is that at least so far, uh, the various leaders of the AI movement um, have all said there needs to be regulation. Even when the President Biden worked with the leaders of those four or five companies to do voluntary regulations, they were all there in Washington because they said this can't be just the, the you know the the wild west the the the, the you know anything goes. Um, but I also think we're going to have to be careful about it. One of the challenges for Congress so far is trying to identify what the downside risks are. There's an interesting company in Arlington, Virginia that's trying to develop a taxonomy of those risks, sort of application by application, what's the worst that could happen? And as we put that together, hopefully we'll be able to create guardrails that are really just for safety but don't subtract from the innovation. And uh, this is the, the challenge in the days to come. It's very clearly laid out. How to do it's gonna be harder.
1: And there's been some debate on Capitol Hill about the creation of a dedicated AI agency. We've seen several proposals from lawmakers on this front, support from some companies, opposition from others. Where do you fall on creating a dedicated agency to regulate AI?
0: Kat, yeah, I'm ambivalent at the moment. Um, part of my ambivalence is I know that anytime we create a new federal agency, it gets really big, really fast. And all of a sudden you have three or 4,000 people and you have to build a new building. Um, and as economists have pointed out in the past, you'd be careful when you start a new federal program because they're really hard to get rid of. Um, on the other hand, the, the alternative to that is allowing the different agencies, those Department of Commerce, Department of Defense, uh, State Department, uh, NASA, to do the AI governance, the AI management, you know, sort of agency by agency, based on the specific kinds of uses that AI has for them. You know, Census Bureau. You know, just, just across the river in, in Maryland, yeah, they they are going to need to have and probably do already um, an AI group within them that's looking specifically how AI is used in the census processes and what the restrictions need to be. So I tilt towards doing it um, on a on a decentralized basis, um, but there are other people. One thing that may drive it, CAD, is that. Um, most folks have pointed out that you know, we're only 5% of the world's population. We, we, we punch way above our weight, but uh, for us to do it perfectly doesn't mean that India, China, Russia, Nigeria is going to do it perfectly. And at, the, at the end of the day, we're probably going to need a Geneva Convention on AI, something that's come together that most of the world, will lose North Korea, will lose Iran, you know, we'll come together and agree to use it in these responsible ways. And to that extent, Having one centralized agency in Washington may help that to happen faster.
1: On that point of the need for international cooperation, there's an AI summit scheduled at the beginning of next month in the United Kingdom. Do you have any hope that that will create that type of international alignment that we need? Or do we need something more than that?
0: Well, first, I'm really excited that that's happening because it is a really important first step. Um, but I would love to see the, the United Nations in particular uh, step up and say that this is going to be a major, you know, like one of the top two or three priorities uh, in the coming decade um, and, and not wait two or three years to start to start right now. Because we need to bring in, I mean, we, again, we we moved so much in the sadly wrong direction on arms control and arms agreements with China's building 1500 nuclear weapons and the like. Um, we can't let that that movement in the wrong direction on, on, on things like arms, um, distract us from moving forward as aggressively as we can on how artificial intelligence can be responsibly used. And we have models, um, you know, the Paris Agreement uh, on climate, uh, which was pretty much international with China and Russia and India all on board. We need to do the same thing with AI.
1: And, on that point, I wanted to ask you a bit about the competitiveness with China. Um, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt has warned that the U.S. is falling behind China on AI. Do you agree with that assessment? How do you think we're faring right now?
0: Well, I, I don't. I don't know if we're falling behind. I, I just don't have enough insight into it. I do know that the respective Intel committee chairman Mark Warner in the Senate, Mike Turner in the House, of both. Uh, stated very strongly that we cannot allow ourselves to lose the ai competitiveness battle with china but too much else is at stake Um, and if somebody if an industry or a country establishes a predominant position in a given industry or in artificial intelligence it makes it harder for everybody else to catch up and we can't ignore the military and the intelligence implications of them being better at it than we are Um, especially when you consider that I think the statistic right now is 85% of satellite data is not even looked at. Once the AI models are big enough and strong enough to look at all that satellite data, my goodness, the insight into what's happening in a different country is going to, to you know, magnify incredibly. And we'd like to have that capability rather than China.
1: And Congressman, we're almost out of time. So I wanted to ask you, as much as we've talked today about the risks of artificial intelligence, what are some of the potential developments that you're most excited about in the field?
0: Yeah, Kat, the thing, I've, what really attracted me to it in the first place um, is the ability of AI to change the way we live. Uh, just starting with health. Uh, there's a great article I just read this morning about how they're using AI in brain surgery to take small pieces of brain tissue in the middle of the surgery, you know, the size of a, a kernel of corn and analyze it through AI in 30 minutes decide how the surgery should go forward. Can they do it minimally aggressive or maximally aggressive to, to do outcomes? The ability now to predict pancreatic cancer three or four years ahead of time, when you actually have a chance to treat it successfully. Uh, the ability to create any protein you want to deal with all the different health issues we have, especially the mental health ones. Um, I just think we are, the quality of our health, especially if we'll exercise and eat right, <laughs> um, could be dramatically different for the for the decades to come you know the average american male white male lived to 40 in the year 1900 and now we're 76 78 could be uh i don't want to double it again but you know 100 to 120 might not be unreasonable with ai and hopefully congress- much better quality of life through that time
1: and given the need to harness both those benefits and risks. What do you think the timeline is for Congress to pass meaningful AI legislation?
0: Well, aside from the speaker fight, I would love to see us do two or three important things this year, this calendar year. There's a widely bipartisan bill introduced by the four leaders of the AI caucus called the the Create AI AI Act that creates an enormous um, government-driven, not funded, but driven, um, database of reliable data for all the scientists and the researchers and the students to use and one of the problems with AI of course and we've seen that with the hallucinations on chat GPT is if you have garbage data in you can get uh, really crazy things out so you want to have what they call curated data sets big massive curated data sets of information that everyone agrees is actually true in order to be able to get the right kinds of information out and that's uh, that's not so much regulation, but it is really important to make sure that AI is being used responsibly. And that's something that could pass this year.
1: Well, we'll be watching out for that. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today at Post Live. We really appreciate you, ha- you coming here.
0: Yeah, Thanks for having the session, Ken. It's really good. The following segment was produced and paid for by Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
2: Hello everyone, I'm Barbara Humpton, CEO of Siemens USA. You know, we're hearing so much about the impact of AI in consumer spaces and now the rise of large language models taking us into new territory. For a few minutes in today's program, I wanna provide some perspective on an area that might not be known as well, what we call industrial AI. How AI is being applied with purpose to address industrial challenges and enhance people's productivity. With me today is a leader with our partner, NVIDIA, a technology company supplying AI, software, and hardware. Brian Harrison is the Senior Director of Omniverse Digital Twins at NVIDIA. Welcome, Brian.
3: Hi, Barbara. Thanks for having me here today. Really an exciting topic.
2: It absolutely is. Brian, I want to help the audience differentiate between consumer and industrial AI applications. How do you define the core differences between the two?
3: like industrials really around applying AI to a problem. So like a, a company has a problem, like they need to train their robots or they want to optimize what they're doing. And really around consumers, uh, it's more about having a more human-like experience. So you can think of like virtual assistants or like health monitoring for that. But the, the differences aren't just kind of the application, they're also uh, more around like data complexity. And when you're looking at industrial applications, there's many more things that are pulled into that, which is like you have machinery that, that's kicking off different types of values, like you know vibration and how much power usage and things like that. And so by having these multiple layers of information really makes that data set more complex and, and much deeper to uh, analyze. But also there's other things around like what systems are involved and normally it's like consumer electronics for, you know, for us, you know, with virtual assistants and things like that versus manufacturing equipment in the industrial side. And then safety is one other piece that is incredibly important on the industrial side, whereas the applications and consumer are, you know, a lot less um, able to have like failures or, you know, uh, things that aren't quite right.
2: Yeah, you know, one of the things we're particularly excited about at Siemens is the potential use of industrial grade AI to drive innovation and economic growth in infrastructure, industry, and mobility. I'd love to hear from you some key use cases you see for industrial AI.
3: Oh, absolutely. Um, so we see like in, in manufacturing plants in particular, you know, this, this need for AI to help optimize like uh, basically acceptance testing, and so let's just take Pegatron for example. And so you know they are putting together you know equipment on the um, electronic side. And so what they want to actually do is you know review the different PCBs coming through, so they can look at these and and figure out are any of the chips pushed in too hard? Are there you know solders missing? You know different problems there may be as the electronics are are fit together. And so they have these automated optical inspection um, cameras. And devices that look at that, but traditionally, you know, the the training for those are, are a bit weak, and so therefore they have like a really high, um, you know, false positives, and so they kick out a lot of boards, and it's time consuming for people to come over and take a look at those rejections. With AI, they're able to actually create massive training sets, and then they've been able to increase that accuracy to 99.6%. And so those failures that are kicked out don't even have to be looked at because they already know that generally they're going to be wrong. And so that, that's one area that's that's um, super exciting because it, it makes their uh, their line more efficient. And then also they they aren't chasing down things that may not even be a problem. Um, another uh, example would be with like Amazon robotics and, and warehouse optimization. And so they have a fleet of uh, mobile robots that are trained to move around these uh, custom racks of of basically you know things that we buy that we buy from amazon and they move them around for storage but they also move them around so people can pick from them right so they they basically bring the shelves to the um to the workers so that they can pick from those more efficiently rather than have to run around the warehouse trying to find all the items that we're buying off amazon um, and so they use ai to help figure out that optimization and, you know, where are these being located, what's, you know, what's optimal, you know, where, so that they're in position so that they can come forward very quickly. Um, But then they also um, take advantage of perception systems so that they can do a better job of uh, robots picking and sorting packages that are gonna be sent out uh, to all of us. So um, pretty exciting how AI makes them much more efficient, uh, makes their warehouses, you know, run quicker so that things can be you know, shipped out um, on
2: time. Yeah, what an exciting couple of use cases, but let's now take this to scale. Uh, let's talk about the future of manufacturing. One of the things Siemens and NVIDIA are working on is combining our capabilities to create an industrial metaverse where manufacturing, engineering, and design will be able to innovate at the speed of software. Think about Moore's law coming to industry. Share with us how the industrial metaverse will transform manufacturing and the possibilities for applying AI in the environment.
3: Yeah. So what we see is um, moving from like today instead of just, you know, building something and then having to go back and tweak and optimize it to actually do everything digitally first. So be able to create these factories digitally so that you can go figure out your problems ahead of time, or at least a lot of them. Uh, before you even, you know, shovel any dirt, and you pour any concrete, your whole factory would be imagined digitally. And then from that, you've actually tested it, and then you've already figured out how to make it um, great right the day that you open it, rather than have to, you know, use it for a year or two to kind of really find the major problems. Because, you know, these manufacturers that are building these factories – you know, they they have challenges, you know, supply chains, you know, that they're not always like coming in on time. They may have periods of like high inflation. They're gonna have like energy costs that continue to increase, right? So they want the more efficiency that they can build into these, the better. Um, But then there's always this push for sustainability as well, right? They wanna have zero waste if possible. How do they do a better job with the environment around them? And so all of these things are really forcing them to uh, be thinking more upfront in the design of what they're doing. And then they need ways to understand if they're actually doing enough or the changes that they're making are actually impactful on their business, both you know the bottom line, but also on the environment. And so this is where we see uh, simulation, digital twins, and AI coming together to really help uh, these companies unlock the potential and to really make uh, their factories very efficient uh, and so that they can see both that return, but also have a much better platform to build on as in the future as they wanna make additional changes.
2: Brian, that's terrific. We are so proud to be partnered with NVIDIA. This is truly technology with purpose.
0: And now back to Washington Post Live.
1: Welcome back. For those of you just joining us, I'm Kat Zekreski, national and tech policy reporter here at the Washington Post. I'm joined now by Jay Lee, the Director of the Industrial AI Center at the University of Maryland, and Victoria Espinel, the President and Chief Executive of the Software Industry Group, BSA. Jay, Victoria, thank you so much for joining me.
4: So glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you so much. And Jay, I wanted to start with you because you have 40 years of experience in industry, academia, and government. And right now we're at this moment where there is a lot of hype and excitement around the potential of AI, particularly ChatGPT. What do you make of the amount of attention that AI is getting right now?
5: Well, AI has been there for decades, not new, but in the old years, we just do it. We don't talk about it. <laughs> 40 years ago, when you, when you work at automotive industry, you make car production with improved quality. We use a lots of supervised learning, but we don't talk about. Today, with ChatGPT, uh, people start realizing the large language model is a very useful, very fundamentally interesting. However, in industry settings, uh, we need to pay attention to large language, uh, large knowledge model, because so engineers, scientists using knowledge to design things. Language is a communication, yes. But so we, we have lots of data out there is broken, uh, the baseline, the backgrounds missing. So we need to utilize those good data, useful and usable data, to create a more sustainable, reliable industrial AI space.
1: And can you tell me a little bit more about those knowledge models and how you're seeing those applied in industry today?
5: Yeah, the knowledge, we, we, we transform from our early years intelligent from traditional automation, just programmed automation, right? Is that intelligent, but pre-programmed. Then we have a rule-based system. We interview with expert and we create expert system. Then we start moving into more smart control system, using network system. But tomorrow, I think we have not just a a individual knowledge, but also collective, collaborative knowledge. So those things we can use more leveraged. For example, transfer learning. We can do many transfer learning way for many machines. We're managing fleet of jet engines, fleet of wind turbines, fleet of EVs. You can use those other, using other vehicles driving behaviors, and uh, to train the model, right? And to improve the reliability and robustness of the, the system.
1: And so obviously this technology is being widely used by industry today. Victoria, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the work that you're doing with the White House on the National AI Advisory Committee. Could you tell us a little bit about that committee and what your goals are given the many different ways AI is transforming the U.S. economy today.
4: Sure, I'd be happy to. Kat, it's wonderful to see you. Uh, And I'll talk a little bit about what's happening on the advisory committee. Um, In fact, um, uh, and then I'm also happy to talk about the work that BSA is doing, not just with Congress here in the United States, but that's an important part of it, but around the world, because you know, never in in all the years that I've been doing technology policy, I've never seen policymakers as seized with an issue around the world as they are with artificial intelligence. And I think that creates an enormous opportunity for us. So I'd love to come back and talk a little bit more about that. But in terms of the President's um, AI Advisory Committee, the National AI Advisory Committee, um, I have the pleasure of chairing the international working group of the committee. And the committee is actually going to be all convening together um, in Washington on Wednesday, so the day after tomorrow, for a public meeting on November 18th and November 19th. Um, So I would encourage you and any member of the public to attend Um, the, the, there are various uh, working groups and sort of strands of focus in the advisory committee, including generative AI. But I would say at a high level, our mandate is to give advice to the administration and to the president. And I think as a group, the committee is very, very focused on what we can do, what recommendations we can give to the administration to ensure that the United States is leading, but is leading on AI in a responsible way.
1: And on that point, we're approaching the UK AI Summit in early November. What guidance are you giving to the administration heading into that event?
4: Um so in term one of the things that we've given as guidance to the administration and I'm, and I'm pleased to say that the UK um, has has taken this approach is to make sure that when governments are convening these groups of leaders from around the world when they're convening multinational discussions on the future of artificial intelligence that they are including a broad range of economies and including emerging economies you know there are countries and markets like the european uh, market the united states japan australia singapore mexico who have been part of these discussions for many years but i think it's very important that discussions involve a broad range of economies because AI is having global impacts, and we need to make sure those conversations are as broad and we're hearing from as many different perspectives as we can.
1: And on that point about international regulation, we know that the European Union has moved much more quickly on artificial intelligence legislation than the United States. The parliament has passed a a bill, and there are ongoing negotiations that could could conclude by the end of this year. Are you concerned, Victoria, about the US falling behind on AI policy as we see other governments move at a faster pace?
4: So I think this is the moment for the United States to, the, as you said, the European Commission has drafted a law. You were absolutely right. We anticipate that the negotiations on that law will be completed by the end of this year, and it will go into effect um, um, some point next year. At the same time, we're seeing governments around the world start to draft legislation or deep into the consideration of what their policy approach will be, the United States Um, I think has been focused on this, but I think there's a real opportunity now for the United States with other countries to work together collaboratively to come up with a globally harmonized approach. And that opportunity is not one that will be there forever, but I think it exists at this moment because governments are very focused on this issue. They want to come up with responsible regulation, and I think there's a real interest in collaborating. So I would urge the United States not only to continue moving forward expeditiously on its approach at home but to be very much part of shaping the, those global conversations and and one more thing yes we you know we say the united states but if you there are really three different parts of the united states, of our system that are working on regulation so there's the white house and what the white house has been doing with the voluntary commitments There's Congress um, and there's interest in Congress on uh, passing legislation. Um, In fact, I'll be testifying on Wednesday before House Energy and Commerce on privacy and AI legislation. But then there's also what's happening at the state level. And there's a lot of activity there. In fact, at BSA, we put out a report last week um, on the, activity happening at the state level, there's been a 440% increase in state state legislative activity on AI compared to last year. That's over four times. So when we talk about legislation and the policy approach in the United States, we need to be thinking about what's happening at the federal level, but we also need to be um, thinking about what's happening at the state level because there's a lot of activity there.
1: And I want to bring Jay back in in just a moment, but you mentioned the executive branch. And in the last session, we talked a bit about the executive order, which is expected by the end of the month. Given your work on the advisory council, are there any details you can share with us about that executive order and what we can expect? So
4: in my NIAC capacity, and there's a special government employee, and what we do, so the short answer that cat no, um, there aren't any details that I can share from my capacity um, uh, in my advisory capacity um, but I can say from my BSA capacity um, that we are aware that uh, this is something the administration has been working on now for quite a while it, we are understanding as you said is that it is coming to completion and we're looking forward to it being out for public comment soon
1: And Jay, I wanted to ask you a bit. One of the big concerns that we talked about in the last session was the impact that artificial intelligence is already having and will have on jobs and the economy. What advice do you have for workers as they prepare for this next industrial revolution?
5: Well, I think in general, any new technology will provide new opportunity, also, bring some changes on the current baseline, right? So, certainly, we need to think about the baseline. Uh, our work, our manufacturing, our industrial sectors, we need to drive a, a stronger, uh, better quality, and better environmental uh, a, a, a emission control, and also better environment to attract young people. So obviously, from that baseline, you can see that we do need a good technologies. Sometimes it may not be high tech, may not be hot tech, but good technologies that can trace make things transparent and predictive, as well as preventive. So I think that we have a three area, I believe, right? Normally we said technology, but we need tools. We need talents, I call 3T. Technology provides us a new way of doing things, but tools give us a systematic way of doing things, and talents give us the capability of doing things. We need to train workers with the new capabilities, Use a new tools to use the technologies. I think that's what I believe there are many things we need to do from different level, from a university level, the new practice oriented training and new test bed and new research evaluation test bed validation from a techno college. They knew they need to use a tool to use the data to learn how to solve the problem using new technology, such as AI. So they gain confidence to move forward. Of course, from even our high school, I believe there something need to be done because the more and more the new trends and new opportunities can bring a new inspiration for younger generation. So with good case studies and good examples from our industry, our real life, that will inspire them to pursue advanced STEM education or great research opportunity.
1: Jay, on that point, if you were talking to a high school student today who was worried about the impact AI is going to have on the economy and what careers they can pursue moving forward, what advice would you give to that student?
5: Well, certainly, I will do the followings. right? First of all, um, AI is not just about artificial intelligence is about actual implementations. (laughs) To learn to know things is good thing, but to know how to do things to make happen is better things. So for high school kids, I would say, example is a very good way. So rather to teach them the principle, I think that we do inverse education. We use all the before and after, before and after. So before AI, what it looks like after AI? What it looks like? I think they get wow. You you need a wow to inspire them, right? Not just um, oh, good. That's not good enough. <laughs> we need excitement to bring to, to excitement is contagious, right? And uh, I think I believe that's very much.
1: And on that point, Victoria, I wanted to ask you a question that we got from our audience. Um, what uh, Rebecca Cook from Arizona asks. What protections or guarantees should there be for American workers displaced or replaced by AI? Are there plans for government and industry to support retraining?
4: Hi, Rebecca that's a great question and it's one that I think applies to technology broadly but the short answer to your question is yes there are lots of active discussions about so about what those plans should look like Um, and in fact um, Senator Catwell among others have been introducing plans that would help do two things and I think you touched on both of them in your question so one is how do we address workers um, that um, are being displaced by AI I think the the critical point there is how do we make sure that workers have the tools that they need so that they can use AI to do their jobs more effectively. So there's rather than being displaced they can use AI tools effectively to either stay in their career now or to be pivoting to another career. You know, I think Jay talked about high school students and that is critically important and we need to make sure our K through 12 education system is training our students for the future they're going to have. But I'm really excited about what we can be doing for people in their mid-career. And I know that Siemens and other companies are focused on how do we give workers that are in their jobs now the digital skills that they need to succeed.
1: And Jay, we have another audience question. Bob Whitcomb from Oregon asks, we have gone from automation hitting blue-collar workers to chat GPT hitting white-collar workers. Yet government policies regarding workplace impacts and AI guardrails are not happening in the U.S. Will this neglect exacerbate the coming upheaval?
5: Well, I think... uh... The lesson need to be learned from both sides, and I think the uh has uh, lots of potential to improve the productivity, not just in the office environment, but also in a business environment. For example, customer service. And in a factory, you can have a lot of spare parts management and CRM, and also in the future, how you improve the diagnostics the lim- with the limited knowledge. How can you help them? Right, so improve the productivity and and also efficiency. So I think that we need to have a better baseline and also good bottom line to justify how to improve things. So regardless, I believe uh, a uh, to define something should not do, the certain areas we certainly need to have a priority and the certain area we also need to pay a, some uh, attention to sensitivities. So priority sensitivity certainly can give us a good guideline how to make things happen in the right way.
1: And Victoria, given your focus on international policy in your work for the advisory committee, what role do you think international cooperation has to play when addressing the job upheaval that we are predicting we'll see from artificial intelligence?
4: I think international collaboration is essential on all aspects of artificial intelligence on, on the numerous benefits that we're going to see in terms of research, in terms of regulation, in terms of thinking about and the impact on workers. I, I think we need international collaboration on all of them. I do think it's really exciting that you have so many governments that are focused on this and don't want to work together. That's not always the case, um, but it is the case at this moment. And so, again, I would urge the United States, the UK, I would urge governments around the world to take to seize that opportunity for international collaboration and the significant focus and goodwill that lies there, and uh, do everything that we can with it.
1: And. You represent the companies in many instances that are developing this technology. What responsibility do you think the companies themselves have to assist with retraining and these shifts in the workforce?
4: I think, so I represent the enterprise, the B2B part of the tech industry, the industrial metaverse, um, to use the term that Barbara used. And I think there's a lot that's happening there, but I think there are obligations that should, um, that, that are, critical for companies, both companies that are developing artificial intelligence and the companies that are using artificial intelligence. And at BSA, we represent both companies that are creating artificial intelligence and companies that are, create, are using artificial intelligence. And I think in order for you, artificial intelligence to be used responsibly, it's critical that there be obligations, we would say obligations, that are required by law. Um, on those companies to do a number of things, including assess the impact of the AI tools that are being developed or used. And if they are being used in high risk situations, if they are being used in ways that have consequential impacts on on people's lives, then to take steps to mitigate those risks and um, identify the problems and fix them.
1: And Jay, I wanted to bring in another reader question. David Vincenti from New Jersey asks, what advice do you have for business school educators, particularly regarding the use of AI to automate and accelerate business tasks, which are currently labor-intensive? What skills and tasks should we begin de-emphasizing in favor of new skills?
5: That's a very good question, <laughs> I would say. Well, one thing we are facing today is uh, a, we call the data-centric economy. We're dealing with lot of data. Lot's of data well, if you go to modern fab. Uh, I've seen advanced fab. They're all about data in the data room. Uh, we need to understand how to use data. And today, unfortunately, in most of the curriculum or education, even business school, engineering school, regardless there are computer science courses about data science. But not about how to. Hunt the data, how to find the data, how to differentiate data as useful versus usable. How do you find the data quality? How do you engineer that? Eventually, how do you select the right data? How to select the right tool? So I, I think in business school, we need to also enhance the understanding about business model. For example, there are many companies, right? They don't just sell products. They have a business model attached to it, right? For example, you have a, a GE power by the hour. It's a great business model. Then you have a Tesla has a insurance. Drivers, I have Tesla, so, I drive. so you have insurance, then your driving behavior, which is, uh, can be scored. Eventually the data will be utilized as training model. So I, I believe it's not just about technology itself, the data source, how we reduce the data sets using a complexity of data and to generate more valuable outcomes. I think that, that piece need to have a good practices oriented, just principle itself, not good enough.
1: Well, thank you so much for those insights. Jay, Victoria, unfortunately, this is all the time we have. Thank you so much for joining us at PostLive. Thanks
5: so much for
4: having me.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.